We're going to be in Mark's gospel again today, the 15th chapter, beginning in about verse 12. But uh, let me just say, if we were to kind of summarize the whole message of the Bible, what would it be if we were to try to do it in a few sentences? It would be that God had an eternal purpose. The Bible describes, he even calls it in Ephesians chapter 1, God's eternal purpose. And that purpose was that he would have on this earth that he created image bearers, those who would actually bear and reflect the very image of the creator God, that he would be glorified through those image bearers. So the Bible tells us that he created Adam and Eve and he breathed into them the breath of life and he said we will make them in our own image. They were the original image bearers of the divine almighty creator God. But sin entered the picture and thus uh, defaced and defiled the image. And uh, it didn't erase the image, but it did greatly mar the image. And the Bible says that uh, every person that has been born into the human race since that time has been born not in the image of God, but in the fallen image of uh, Adam and Eve. And so when you came into this world, when I came into this world, we came with uh, the potential image of God in us, but the actual image of sin in us. So we were born in sin, the Bible says. We had a warp, twistedness to our being. And we demonstrate that by the choices that we make in life, you know. And occasionally I meet somebody who says, well, I've never sinned. And uh, I'm just always amazed that anybody could make a statement like that. And I, and then when I began to ask them, well, have you ever told a lie? You know, well, yeah. Then what is that? You know, have you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? Well, maybe. Well, uh, that is sin. And, uh, and then we sin in thought. We sin in word. We sin in action. We sin in motive. We sin in attitude. So... The Bible actually teaches that our sins, they just stack up, stack, stack, stack. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and come short of the glory that God intended for us to have. So that's the, that's the story of the, of the problem. But then God had an eternal purpose to redeem out of this mass a fallen mankind, a people who would bear his image. But there was a problem. In order to do that, in order to, to redeem, that meant that the price had to be paid. That's what redemption means, paying the price to release a slave or to redeem a piece of property. To, to redeem means to buy back. And so... In order for our sin to be forgiven and for us to become image bearers, the purchase price had to be made. And so the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what it costs. That's what the penalty for sin is, is death. So we all incurred the debt of sin and the debt of death. So all throughout the Old Testament, 
there was these pictures, kind of types, uh, little little pictures of of someone who is innocent dying in the place of someone who's guilty. Even in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to hide themselves with leaves from the garden, the Bible says that God clothed them with the skins of animals. So obviously some animals had to die in order for those skins to be taken to clothe them. So there's, we have the very first picture of someone dying, something innocent dying in order to cover someone who's guilty. And then all through the Old Testament, I mean just picture after picture, all the sacrifices, all the priesthood, uh, Abraham taking his son Isaac up on the mountain, getting ready to slay him and and God stops him, and then he shows him a, a ram caught in the thicket, and he says, let this ram be the substitute for Isaac. And, and just, again, oh, it'd take two years to just go through the Old Testament pictures of the innocent dying in the place of the guilty. And all that is to prepare the minds of the Jewish people For the fact that God would send a Messiah. God would send a Savior. And this Savior according to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 and so many other places in the Old Testament. That he would be pierced. That he would be wounded. That he would be killed. That he would be crucified. In fact Psalm 22. You read Psalm 22. It describes the crucifixion a thousand years before crucifixion ever took place. 600 years before crucifixion had ever even been, been invented by the Persians. And, and here he, he describes in Psalm 22 that they have pierced my hands and my feet. And uh, they encompass me about and they wag their head at me and they shoot out their tongue and they say, aha, aha, he saved himself. Let him save, he saved others, let him save himself. And, and he says, from the standpoint of the one being crucified, my, my tongue is stuck to the roof of my mouth and I, I thirst. And uh, it just describes the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, I was talking to a Jewish rabbi one time and uh, he, I asked him if I could read a passage and I said, tell me, is this found in the Old Testament or the New Testament? And I read Psalm 22. And he said, well, that's obviously in the New, New Testament. And I said, would it surprise you to know that this is in your Bible? And it is a description of the crucifixion of Jesus a thousand years before it took place. And he said, let me see that. And he looked at it. He had never read that. As a matter of fact, that verse, that chapter, and and Isaiah 53, most Jewish people are discouraged from even, even reading those chapters. So all of the all of the stories in the Old Testament were preparing the Jewish people for the fact that a Messiah would come. But he would not come 
as a conquering king. That was how they anticipated him. That's what they wanted. But he would come rather as a suffering servant. And that he would be wounded for our transgressions. That he would be uh, rejected. And that he would be crucified. But why? It is because the debt that sin had incurred had to be paid. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And he could not overlook sin. He could not just say, well, it's okay. My glory and my name, my reputation has been defiled and defamed, but never mind. No, God is righteous and God is just. So how could he be just and at the same time justify guilty sinners? That's the dilemma of the Bible. And the whole book of Romans, especially the first four four or five chapters, is asking and answering that question. How could God, a holy, just, perfect God, who must judge sin, How could he possibly allow sinners to ever come into his presence knowing that they could not in any way justify themselves? And the answer to that dilemma is the cross. It is the birth, the life, the sinless life, and then the sacrificial death of Jesus On the cross. That's how God could be both just, that is, the penalty had to be paid. The sin had to be atoned for in order for sinners to be redeemed. And they could not, we could not do it for ourselves. And so Jesus comes. Amazing story. I'm telling you, just the amazing gospel story. We'll be celebrating here just in a couple of months, Christmas time, the incarnation, where God became flesh, where the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and lived a life in perfect obedience to every law of God and did what no one had ever done, lived a life that qualified him to be an acceptable payment for sin. It's just amazing, isn't it? And then he comes on the scene. He's baptized by John the Baptist who says, Look, here's the Lamb of God. All those stories about the lambs being sacrificed, here is God's Lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. And he lived his life under the most intense scrutiny, the most intense uh, attacks, both from Satan and from religious leaders, despised, rejected, hated, plotted against, betrayed, denied, abandoned, arrested, and put on trial. 
all this in God's divine plan. We've looked at that the last few weeks, and we come to this place now where Jesus had been with his disciples in the upper room, instituting the Last Supper, the, and what we call the Lord's Supper or communion. And then they leave that place probably about 9 o'clock at night, and they go out to a garden, and Jesus spends an hour or maybe two hours in the most intense prayer. And near midnight, there comes Judas, the band of temple police and Roman soldiers, and they arrest Jesus there in the garden. And within the next nine hours, Jesus is going to be crucified nine hours later from the time of his arrest in the garden until they're nailing him to a cross nine o'clock in the morning the next morning. He goes through six trials. He goes through three Jewish trials. At midnight or 1230, one o'clock in the morning, he's taken to the high priest's father-in-law, Annas. And there he is examined and they can't find any, any charges against him. And then they take him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this particular time. And he's examined further. And there are false accusations. They round people up. It's the middle of the night. It's one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And they bring people in to accuse him but they can't get their stories straight. All their accusations, uh, there's nothing that can stick. And they finally ask him outright, plainly, are you the son of God? And he says, I am. And they said, we don't need any further trial. He has blasphemed. And the charge, the, the penalty for blasphemy is death. But they don't have the authority to, uh, to put him to death. So they put him in a holding place for about three hours, and he's abused, the Bible tells us, by temple police and soldiers. And then 6 o'clock in the morning, they wake Pilate up, and they bring him to Pilate, the Roman governor, and they present him and Pilate, who hates the Jews, by the way, and the Jews hate him, but he becomes a useful tool for these religious leaders because only the Roman law could allow a man to be crucified. They bring him to Pilate. Pilate examines him, says, I, I don't see anything wrong with this man. But he finds out that he's from Galilee, and he said, oh, He's from Herod's jurisdiction. So he sends him to Herod, which is right there in Jerusalem, probably even in just a neighboring uh, building. Herod examines him. Jesus will not even speak to Herod. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. He said, I don't see anything wrong with him. And then Pilate, this is the third Roman trial, and Pilate tries to let him go. 
Pilate says, uh, I can't find anything wrong with him. But the Jews would not stop. They cry out. The Jewish leaders, they cry out. Let him be crucified. Crucify him. Crucify him. And Pilate says, well, why? What has he done wrong? So Pilate has an idea. He thinks, I will have him scourged. And he has him beaten almost to death. Scourging takes place this way. They stretch a man out until his back, all of his skin is tight and taut. And they have two called lictors. And they first with rods beat him. And then they take whips that have nine leather thongs on them. And each leather thong, each leather strip has a piece of bone or a piece of metal or a piece of rock embedded into the end of it. And these two men whip the body of Jesus. And according to Bible historians, many times people died under the whip. They died under the scourging. Because the leather would wrap around the body and as they would jerk it, it would just operate on the person. Many times their intestines would even come out. Their muscles would be exposed. And if you watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's probably the closest depiction of what it might have really looked like as these two lictors... After they beat him, then they turn him over on his back and whip him on the front side until finally he is almost dead. Some people have asked, wonder why he didn't die under the whip because Jesus had said, I must be lifted up. And if I be lifted up, I will draw men to me. He was not lifted up there on the ground. He had to die on the cross and so Pilate brings him back out just a bloody mass of human flesh stands him before the people they have platted a crown of thorns the soldiers have platted a crown of thorns and pressed it into his scalp and he stands him up before Jesus and I mean before the crowd and says Behold the man. Thinking perhaps that when they see him in this condition, that some element of human compassion might cause them to say, that's enough. That's enough. But it didn't work. And they cried out further, he must die. Crucify him. And so we pick up the reading in Mark's gospel, and you'd have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to get a full, complete picture of what happened. And Pilate said in verse 12 of chapter 15, Pilate again said to them, Then what, what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Crucify him. Now, crucifixion was a torturous death that had been invented by the Persians about 400 years previous. And thousands and thousands of people had been crucified. 
from that time forward. Alexander the Great crucified 4,000 people in Tyre whenever he marched through that part of Israel by the seacoast and the people of Tyre <clears throat> moved off to an island and they taunted Alexander because Alexander didn't have ships and they thought they were safe. So Alexander ordered his soldiers to take everything on the seashore, every building, everything, and build a land bridge out to the island. And if that wasn't enough, he said, scrape it bare, scrape, off, scrape up all the dirt, just like the prophet had said about Tyre. Isaiah had said that the time would come when it would be scraped down to the stone. That's exactly what happened. If you were to go to Israel today, you would see that. And he built a land bridge out to that island and went out and captured 4,000 people and had them all crucified. Crucifixion, horrible, horrible death in which the hands and feet were nailed with large spikes to a wooden cross. And they were left to just hang there until they died. It usually took two or three days for most people to die by crucifixion. And they would die, really, by suffocation because the only way they could breathe was to push with their feet that had spikes through it to get a breath. And uh, it was an excruciating long suffering death Jesus died after six hours on the cross the Bible says he was crucified at 9 a.m. and at noon a heavy darkness covered the whole place and it was during that time that he cried out my God my God, the only time we ever call God anything other than Father. But for, during this particular period of time, he was becoming sin for us. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And that all our sins were laid on him. And when the Bible describes the death of Jesus, it doesn't give a lot of detail. It doesn't describe the scourging. It just says, and they scourged him. It doesn't describe the crucifixion. It just says, and there they crucified him. It doesn't give us the graphic kind of pictures that uh, Mel Gibson's movie gave us. Because the suffering of Jesus on the cross was not primarily what he suffered physically. That's indescribable. There's no doubt. We can't even imagine what it would be like to go through the scourging and the crucifixion. But it was not the scourging and the nails that was the greatest part of his suffering. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was not praying Father, save me from the pain of the cross. He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. And the cup 
as described in the Old Testament, was the cup of God's wrath against sin. He was saying, Father, for all of eternity, there has been unbroken fellowship. And I know that if I have to drink this cup of your wrath, there will be a time when that fellowship will be broken. And all the awful wrath of a holy God against sin will be poured out on me. No wonder he prayed three times. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And yet he knew there was no other way. Thus he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, what a, what a coward, so Pilate said to them, so Pilate, wishing to, sa- to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. They called together the whole battalion. This is about 600 men, a cohort of men. They called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, pressed it into his scalp. And they began to mock him. They began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. This was what they would say for Caesar. Hail, Caesar. But now they're mocking Jesus, they're making a clown out of him, a buffoon. They're mocking him, humiliating him. And I just remind you, he went through all that knowing full well that he was the creator, God. He even said, do you not know that I could call at any time ten legions of angels? Legion is six thousand ten I could call sixty thousand angels at any time to set me free but he had not come to demonstrate his ability to be set free he had come rather to pay for my sin and your sin so he took it and he took it the shameful, scornful rebuking. And they were striking his head with a reed. The word there for reed, sometimes translated arrow. Some, it's, a, it's a stick. It's not a small thing. It's a, we would call it a, a stick. They were striking his head with a reed, and they were spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, mock homage and when they had mocked him they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him and I just tell you the Bible says we love him because he first loved us and where do we see that love demonstrated and herein 
is the love of God demonstrated, the Bible says, that he died for us. You read this, in fact, I almost had to get up and leave the passion of the Christ. It was so graphic and so, and I just kept saying, he did that for me. He did that for me. My sins, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole nailed to the cross and I bear it no more praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul he did it for you now he did it to take away our sin but he also did it to win our heart to win our love to cause us to look to him and say Lord Jesus I love you I love you for wearing the thorns on your brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And then they led him. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And there they crucified him. This uh, Jewish man from Cyrene, which is Tripoli, basically, it's Libya, had come to Jerusalem to uh, worship, to bring his sacrifice. It was Passover time. He had come with his two sons, Rufus and Alexander. Why does he mention Rufus and Alexander? Because the Romans that Mark is writing this to knew who Rufus and Alexander were. The Bible tells us in the book of Romans, the last chapter, that Rufus was a leader in the church in Rome. After the crucifixion, no doubt Simon, who had carried the cross of Jesus became a believer in Jesus. I can't can you imagine carrying that cross and getting the blood of Jesus on your face and clothes and then watching him die and hearing him say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Hearing the Roman soldiers say, Surely this was the Son of God. And Simon of Cyrene became a believer in Jesus. He and his two boys go back to Serene, and according to church history, they started the church in Cyrene. And later, Rufus and Alexander moved to Rome, and they are members of the church there in Rome. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine what it would be like for these two boys? They were really just little boys. As they see Jesus die on a cross, I remember when I was about nine years old going to the movie and watching a story about the crucifixion of Jesus. It had such a great impact on me as even as a little kid. But to actually be there and to see Jesus die on the cross. 
Ray Bolts wrote a song several years ago called Watch the Lamb. I'd like for you to watch the movie of Watch the Lamb. Brad, if you could uh, dim that. This is Simon of Serene and his two sons, Rufus and Alexander, uh, called Watch the Lamb. And I just remind you that he did that for me. He did that for you. He did it to do two things, three things, really. One, to cleanse your sin. Your sin laid on him when he said it is finished from the cross. That is a one word in the Greek, not three. It's the word tetelestai. And it's the word that was stamped on payments that had been paid in full. He said, paid in full. It's all paid. Jesus paid it all. And so he did it to pay for your sin, but he also did it to win your heart. He wants you to love him. That's what he wants. He appreciates any act of service and things like that, but but actually, that's not what he wants from me or from you. He wants our love. He wants us to love him, to trust him. And then he did it, thirdly, so that you could become an image bearer. That was his original purpose, his eternal purpose. And the Bible says that we, in Romans 829 that we are being conformed to the image of God's dear son that's what he wants for each of us I hope you've trusted him I hope you love him I hope you believe that he did that for you and if you haven't put your trust in him what a wonderful day this would be for it to be said of you as it was of Zacchaeus, this day salvation has come to this house, to this person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. And I know that there's no way, absolutely no way, that I could have ever atoned for my own sin or that I could have ever justified myself, made myself right with you. But I believe with all my heart that Jesus coming to this earth, living the sinless life that I didn't live, and then dying the substitutionary death that I deserved, and then rising again from the grave, that by that he's able to cleanse me of all sin, win my heart, and make me a, an image bearer. And I pray that if there's anybody here who's never trusted him, that they might do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We invite you to like us on Facebook 
or visit our website, www.bearcreekbaptist.org. If you're not a member of another church, we would like to invite you to join us in person and get to know us and let us get to know you. Have a great week and may the Lord richly bless you.